0: We do hear, you know, I've had a rotten childhood, so I'm destined for a bad life, or I grew up in a really tough neighborhood and I didn't have a lot. And I know I'll never be as happy as someone that grew up with benefits. And I think what our research suggests and the research of others is that, A, it's not destiny, that whether it's genetics or your early experience, there's plenty of opportunity for people to grow and change, that we change the environments in which we live in throughout our life. And we also change as we grow and, and get older in life. So that's a really important part. And I just think that there's so much evidence, both again from our study and from others, that people do change. And the change is sometimes extraordinary. It's not just stories of people in their 20s or 30s figuring it out. It's people in their 60s or 70s that have lived in very difficult circumstances for large portions of their life, deciding that they're going to do something different, and they're really trying to change their lives in some way.
1: I'm Doug Bopes, personal trainer, best-selling author, and entrepreneur, and I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage podcast, where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to another episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst, and today's guest is Mark Schultz, Ph.D. Mark is the Associate Director of the Harvard Study of Adult Development, which is the longest scientific study of happiness ever conducted. The study has followed the lives of two generations of individuals from the same families for more than 80 years. Dr. Schulz received his Bachelor of Arts from Amherst College and his Ph.D. in clinical psychology from the University of California at Berkeley. He is a practicing therapist with postdoctoral training in health and clinical psychology at Harvard Medical School. Mark is also the co-author of the newly released book, The Good Life, Lessons Learned from the World's Longest Scientific Study on Happiness, Today, Dr. Scholz and I chat about the findings of his study and what actually makes people happy long-term. We also discuss how things like money, relationships, adversity, and work impact our levels of happiness and what it actually means to live a good life and so much more. So let's get this conversation going and welcome Dr. Mark Scholz to the Adversity Advantage Podcast. Mark, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. I'm excited to talk with you because we're gonna talk about something today that I think everybody wants, and that is they want to live a good life. And I know you've surveyed over 700 people across an 80-year span to really dive into their levels of happiness and how satisfied they were with their lives. And so I think a good place for us to start is, like, what are the common themes? So let's just say somebody has gotten towards the end of their life. What were some of the things that had to happen to determine whether or not they live the good life
0: yeah so such an important question because we all are trying to figure it out ourselves and and what our study shows after following people across 80 plus years of time across their entire lifetimes essentially is that the key to a good life what we think about as the good life to flourishing and to well-being and happiness is having solid connections with other people. That's what helps us flourish in life. And we see that when we look ahead, so when we follow people from their teens all the way through to the end of their life, we see that the folks who are flourishing, who are doing the best, are folks that have maintained connections that help them get through life in a number of ways. They help them in an enormous number of ways. We can also, we ask people at the end of their life, so we're lucky enough to follow people across their entire lifetime, and we ask people in their 80s Did they have any regrets? And maybe not surprising to many of your listeners, what they talked about were not regrets about having wishing they had worked harder or wishing they had more accomplishments. What they talked about was wishing they had spent more time or had invested more in relationships that were
1: important to them. But that's what they regretted at the end of their life, not investing as much as they could. And diving more into the subject of relationships like what types of relationships would you say were most meaningful to people? Because like obviously it's people could just go out and they could just spend time with people they didn't you know connect with or people they might not have even liked or people that they didn't feel comfortable around just for the sake of being around people. So what types of relationships did you find were most meaningful? Yeah. So I'm
0: gonna answer it two ways. It's all kinds of relationships are important. So To flourish in life, it doesn't mean that you need to be married or married in the conventional sense or even have a long-term partner, that we can get benefits from our connections with friends, our connections with relatives, our connections with intimate others as well. So when I'm talking about the importance of relationships, I'm not talking about one type of relationship. But it is important to think about the quality of the relationship, as I think, Doug, you're suggesting, that it's, it's not just a matter of having friends on Facebook or being able to count up the number of people in your network, that the quality of those connections also matters. So what do we mean by quality? It helps to think about the functions that relationships can serve for us so they do so many things for us they help us figure out who we are kind of who are what our identity is and where we come from they help us remember where we've come from important relationships and that shared history that we have they help us importantly cope with challenges in our life so stress and challenges are inevitable having friends and people in our network that we can count on for emotional support during that time, for strategic support, trying to figure out what the best pathway forward might be, really critical. And relationships on the other end, they also help us experience our most intense joy, that we experience our strongest emotions, usually when we're with others. And that includes the, the pleasurable emotions, joy and just you know giddiness that we can have with a friend. So we're really talking from the study, we've learned to appreciate the value of relationships across the spectrum, because relationships give us so many things, it's unusual that you would get all you need from one
1: relationship. And so do you think that things could potentially shift as far as what drives happiness and what drives like people to say they live the good life as far as where we're at now with the fact that so much is different and that you know, back in the day in the sixties, seventies, eighties, nineties, two thousands, there wasn't technology. So people weren't as distracted, they were more focused, they had to spend time with people like in person in order to, to build a relationship. And now, in a way, it's easy to avoid that and and build a relationship just through the phone or through Zoom or through, you know, the online world. What are your thoughts on that?
0: Yeah, it's, it's an important question, and it's also, I think, a really complicated question. So I'm going to say two things again. One is that these are folks that grew up in the 20s and 30s that we studied across their entire lifespan. So most of them, if they were alive, they'd be close to 100, but most of the sample has died. We're actually studying their children, 1,300 of their middle-aged children. I've become a student of history partly by being interested in the lives of our participants and trying to learn what their experience was like. And there were technological changes that were significant and really shaped the way people communicate with each other. So telephones, TVs, those were things that were introduced during our participants' lifetimes. And they were also radical in the way that they changed the relationships that people had. Having said that. There's a kind of pace of change that's unusual, and the particular nature of our virtual world today, to me, does raise some concerns about the ways in which we can be social. So I want to say first that there are enormous benefits to social connections that are played out over, for example, Zoom or over social media, that there are ways of connecting people that maybe... Don't have someone like them nearby they can reach out and connect with someone that they share an interest or share a challenge with so they can bring us together in ways that are quite extraordinary during the pandemic they were critical for people maintaining friendships and relatives staying connected so incredibly powerful But they're different than real-time interactions. So the example that I like to think about, and I think it's important for everyone to think about, is children growing up today who are used to communicating about important interpersonal challenges via text. There's a kind of sequence to texting that has a stop in it, that you send a text, you wait for the response. There's not a real-time management of emotions in the same way that face-to-face interactions might have. And This particular unusual constellation of social media, virtual world, combined with the pandemic during the last almost three years now, really interesting time where I think all of us are struggling with what it means to be with each other and what it means to, in real time, connect and wrestle with the differences and challenges that are inevitable in relationships. But I particularly worry about young people who lost two and a half, three years of experience that most of the rest of us had when we were in that very formative period of development, learning how to wrestle with our emotions, learning how to deal with conflicts with other people. The amount that that happens online now is, I think, something we all need to reckon with and think about what the
1: consequences of that might be. And based on what you just said, like having an, a virtual relationship is not nearly as effective or as important as, you know, face-to-face, in-person relationships, right? I, I think they're different. So
0: I, I wouldn't say it's not as important, although I'm tempted. The old person of me wants to say they're not as important, but I think they're different. There are value to these virtual relationships. They help augment our in-person, real-time relationships. But I'm someone who's really interested in relationships that are central to our identity and to our experience. And it's hard to imagine having those completely online. So there's a piece that's missing in relationships that are completely online. And that piece may make them, certainly makes them different. And it may make them, for young people in particular, they may be missing out on some important growth experiences. We all need to learn how to deal with our emotions or when we're frustrated with what someone who's important to us may be doing or not doing for us. And there's a way in which virtual relationships just it's a very different dynamic and it's the temporal dynamic that's very different and I worry about what happens when we come together. I'm going to make it more concrete, Doug, if I can. I teach. I've been teaching at a college, a university for over 25 years now and, you know, students are struggling with what it means to be together after the pandemic has gone on for this length of time. And by that, I mean that they're not sure what to do when they have you know, unstructured time in which they're together with other people. They're not sure how much they should spend time outside of their rooms than than by themselves. And these are issues we all struggle with, but I see young people in particular struggling with them. And I think we've created an unusual circumstance where we've had this confluence of technology and the pandemic that does create some unusual circumstances that are different than past generations have dealt with.
1: Right. And I think part of the problem is with the adjustment is there's a lot of people that they want to be in person and they want to be able to have face-to-face relationships, but either they've lost the ability to figure out how to to build a relationship in person or they've developed some sort of social anxiety or they're so distracted now because of the use of cell phones and technology. Given what you know, about all of this? I mean, I know people have talked about when you're in person with somebody, you know, putting your phone away, paying attention, like being present. Other than that, what are a few like tips that you might have to strengthen in-person relationships?
0: One of the things that I think about as being so critical is our attention, that if we think about what's most precious to us in life, the place we put our attention is such a valuable place. It's such a valuable thing to give to someone. So I think it really helps to think about for the people you care about, are you, when you're with them, are you present? Are you listening to them? Are you able to take in information about what their experience is like? Are you curious about what their experience is like? So this idea about giving your attention and being present is so critical. And it's a skill that we develop over time. It doesn't come naturally. We have to kind of work at it. And we have so many distractions in our world today. So, yeah, putting away the phone is a good thing for a while when you want to be with someone who you care about and letting them know that you're going to make this a time where you're really going to sit and attend to them and being able to, as hard as it is, being able in some ways to get outside of ourselves, that voice in our head that always distracts us to to really listen to the person that you're talking to. Such a critical thing. So, I think we underestimate the power of our attention. It's a rare commodity that sometimes we spend on things that aren't making us happy and aren't helping
1: us achieve what's important in our lives. So, certainly attending to where we put our attention is critical. Yeah, attention is critical. And I definitely want to shift gears a little bit and talk more in depth about happiness because I know, obviously, at the foundation of living a good life and being happy, relationships, it seems like are the most important thing. But let's define happiness for a second. Like in your view, like how do we define happiness? Because I think there's a lot of nuance to it and it can mean different things to different people.
0: Yeah, so when social scientists talk about happiness, they're usually talking about two things. One is a kind of sustained belief that I'm living a good life, that my life has meaning. So if you ask me to reflect on, am I generally satisfied with my life? Do I feel like my life has a purpose? That's that first dimension. And then the other dimension people often talk about is the experience of joy and happiness. So these momentary points in our life when we experience happiness, what we all commonly call happiness. And both of those are an important part of what people are thinking about when we're talking about happiness. But I also think we've written a book called The Good Life and the title was intentional that the good life is not just about happiness. It's about experiencing life in its fullest sense. So it's hard to be happy without also opening yourself up to the challenges of life, the sorrows of life. So with happiness also comes likely the experience of challenge and sorrow. So the good life is really about experiencing life in its fullest which means opening yourself up to being vulnerable to potentially negative emotions, but also hopefully those joys that really buoy us and help us, you know, experience pleasure in life.
1: What I would also imagine, though, that like part of living that good life is like during the hard times, during the times where life throws you challenges, it's remaining somewhat optimistic and happy during those times so that you don't, Put yourself in a situation where you're turning to, you know, drugs and alcohol or other coping mechanisms that could make your life a lot darker than it needs to be. What what did you find, either through the survey or just through your work and own research, as to how somebody can remain happier and optimistic during hard times? We will get you back to this episode of the Adversity Advantage in just one second. But first, wanted to give a quick shout out to Danette May and Earth Echo Foods. Danette was a past guest on the podcast and shared her incredible story and how it inspired her to create her products such as Cacao Bliss, which I have been using for quite some time now. Lately, I have been trying to use it as an alternative to coffee as I am trying to cut back. I can say I think it might be working. Using it can be as simple as adding it to a smoothie or mixing it with water or your favorite nut milk. Cacao Bliss starts with 100% organic cacao beans that are naturally kissed by the sun, maintaining its miraculous health benefits. Then it's blended with turmeric, MCT oil, coconut, Himalayan sea salt, cinnamon, and black pepper for the perfect blend to make you feel the best you ever have. Not only that, it is friendly to keto, gluten-free, paleo, vegan, and vegetarian diets. So go to earthecofoodscom slash Doug Bobst. Again, it's EarthEchoFoods.com slash Doug Bobst to check it out and learn more about the amazing benefits of Cacao Bliss. And when you enter in the promo code Doug at checkout, you'll get 15% off. Now back to the show. So i
0: want to say a little bit more about our study, which is unusual in so many ways. It's not just that it followed people for eight decades, but it followed people really closely. So we interviewed people throughout their life. We visited their homes when they first started the study. So we had a sense of what it was like to grow up in their house and what their parents were like. So when I talk about our findings, it's not just from surveys in which people are filling in numbers on a questionnaire. This is from observing the lives, very closely the lives of 724 individuals across the Bulk of their lives, right? So what we know is, is certainly that your mindset is important, that the way you think about things and the way you put into perspective the particular challenges that you are experience help you get through life in certain ways. So our participants happened to grow up during the Depression. Many of the participants served in World War II. Many of them were in battle and faced, you know, extraordinary challenges related to that. And one of the things that I think your listeners might find surprising is that many of our participants talked about their World War II experience as both the worst and most challenging experience in their life, and the best experience in their life. And it was the best experience in their life because they felt like they were doing something that was important. They felt like they were literally saving the world at that point, and they were doing it with others that they could trust. So. The participants talked a lot about service with other folks in their battalions their comrades that they served with. And that was such a source of support and just identity for them that they felt like they were doing something important and they were. So despite the risks, the incredible risks, despite the injuries that many of them had, they came away from this as thinking about this as an experience that was a, a growth building experience. So. I think sometimes we underestimate what challenges might do for us. We think about the negative side of them. But it's also clear that challenge offers the opportunity for us to build new skills, to learn new things about ourselves, and importantly, because of the the role that relationships play, to develop new relationships that we can depend on even later in our
1: lives as well. And so staying on this theme, like, what do you think people who either uh, participated in the survey or just people in general, when they're faced with hard times, what kinds of things do they typically like do throughout the day to improve their quality of life and try to remain somewhat positive when things aren't going their way? Yeah. So a few things that they do are they lean into the
0: challenge as opposed to trying to avoid it or make believe that it's not there. Um, So a lot of us have a tendency to get scared by challenges and particularly the emotions that come with those challenges. So we're worried we might have a medical issue and we put off going to the doctor or we don't want to think about it and we try and imagine it may not be important. That a lot of us have that kind of temptation to avoid and deny what may be a challenge for us. So the first thing the folks that do well seem to do is they lean in in some ways. They recognize the challenge and they acknowledge it and will even talk about it and share it with others. So the second piece is really engaging people in your support network, figuring out ways to share the burden by engaging with others. It might mean getting their knowledge or their perspective on the problem. Oftentimes people can think about problems that we have in a way that's a little bit more, you know, they're able to step back because it's not their problem. So they're able to give us a, a kind of advice that might be more rational, might be less emotionally driven, that might offer us important perspective. So leaning in, depending on others, really important. And then I think that perspective taking that we talked about, that things change very quickly in our lives that we don't often think about the pace at which our life change because while we're living it, it happens slowly. But people who are doing well are likely to unfortunately face challenges in the future. And people who are struggling, things are likely to change for them as well. So when you study the lives of hundreds of people over time, what you notice, one of the consistent themes is the inconsistency of people's lives, that lives change. People have incredible resilience when they face tough times, and people have had a good life that's been relatively free of challenges. Suddenly, a crisis happens. They have a medical problem. They experience a loss. Life doesn't stay the same. That's part of what's both exciting and challenging about life.
1: It is, right? There's these ebbs and flows and ups and downs, and it's about trying to maintain some sense of equanimity and level like be even keel kind of throughout the highs and the lows and i think that's how you get through life because you don't want to be too high when things are going good and you certainly don't want to be too low when things are going bad so we've talked about how to remain you know optimistic during challenges what about like when life is i guess normal because i think sometimes you know people they end up chasing after the wrong things that they think will make them happy when in reality they don't. So what are a few happiness traps that you think people commonly fall into?:
0: I think there are a lot, and those I think are related to our culture and the messages that we receive in social media and through you know television and, and film. So, you know, one trap is that I'll be happy if I achieve, or I'll be happy if I make a certain amount of money, that there are kind of badges of accomplishment that our society has emphasized as being really important. And we see displayed, you know, in so many forms of media these days, it's hard to avoid them. So young people are talking about wanting to be influencers, wanting to be famous. And those things are fine if they're important to folks. But what seems to drive people's happiness is the connections that they make in their lives. So that we're in some ways looking in the wrong directions for sources of happiness. And it's common for all of us to do this. Um, you know, achievement is easy to count. You can put things on a resume. You can tell people what your salary is and that it's, you know, even higher than it was last year. But it's much harder to count, you know, the essence of a connection to somebody else. That's a, a much more abstract thing and i think because of the media emphasis and the easy way in which it's quantified things like money and success and career are things that people talk about now i don't want to say doug that they're unimportant and particularly you know i'm someone who's 60 and i can remember what it's like in my 20s trying to figure out what i wanted to do and hoping that i would find a path that would be both meaningful and would bring a certain level of success so having a purpose in life is important But the idea that that's what keeps us or doesn't keep us from being happy, that's the part that I think is partly an illusion that society emphasizes for us.
1: Yeah, it's definitely a trap, right, that people can fall into. Because if you're not internally well, you don't have good solid relationships, you don't have connection to yourself, you don't have meaning, you don't have purpose, you'll often find things to fill that void for you. So I think if you can develop a sense of purpose, meaning, have good relationships, have a good sense of self about who you are as a person. Like then yes, I think, you know, having like being successful, achieving certain things can not only be much more meaningful, but I think it's also warranted because I mean, there's nothing wrong with being successful as long as you're truly happy with who you are and you have good solid relationships to support all that.
0: I think that's right. And if if we think about those moments when we've been most proud of something that we've done, that pride grows when we're able to share it with people that we care about. If they also take some appreciation and some pride in what we've done or what we've achieved, it could be a family member, it could be a friend. You know, gee, dog, that's incredible what you've done. That gives us a feeling of joy that's quite special. So achievement in the context of connection, very fulfilling and very important. But achievement
1: without connection can really lead to unhappiness, I think. Right. I want to stay on this theme of external validation and happiness. And I want to talk about money, because we hear all the time that money doesn't buy happiness, right? But I also think that like money can do a lot of good things for people, right? And in your book, one of the things I really enjoyed reading was about there was like this financial threshold, I guess, to where if it was above a certain threshold, money didn't really drive happiness but if it was below it actually did drive happiness to talk about that
0: yeah so there have been a number of studies trying to look at the connection between wealth or income and, and happiness and they typically converge and the convergence is around this idea that if we can meet our basic needs so if we don't have to worry about shelter and food and the security of our family if we're in a neighborhood that feels safe that we have enough money to do that more money doesn't seem to add much happiness to us. But up to that level where you don't have enough money to live in a safe way, you don't have enough money to live at a kind of subsistence level, it may be that money is important. Although what I want to say is that just because there's a connection between money and happiness at that under the subsistence level, it doesn't mean that the connection is that strong. And that's important to say as well. So money matters, but there are also a number of other things that matter, even for people that are struggling uh, with poverty, for example, beyond money. The amount of money in that study that you're referring to was the essentially the average income for a middle-class person, a middle-class family in the United States, which was about $70,000 at the time the study was done. And it didn't seem that more money after that added to one's happiness. And we can also look at this, other studies have looked at this across countries, so countries that achieve a certain amount of income and wealth in which their citizens live at a level that means they can feed themselves and they have housing and they have a reasonable sense of security and predictability in their life, that that's the level that below that money matters. After that, money doesn't matter so much. So there are a number of wealthy countries where people are not as happy as other wealthy countries, and there are other things that are
1: important clearly beyond money. So why do you think that people who are affluent, make a lot of money, are super successful, you would think on the outside, like their life is going super well, and they are happy. But on the inside, you know, obviously, there's some disconnect. Is it because their relationships aren't good? Is it because you know, their family dynamics maybe aren't healthy, mental health struggles? Like what have you found that really explains why people who make a lot of money aren't necessarily happy?
0: So our study began with two very different groups of people. And it's really interesting. So in the 30s, Almost two-thirds of the participants, there were over 700 participants, almost two-thirds of them were young boys who lived in Boston's poorest neighborhoods. So these were folks that were growing up in tenement buildings. They often didn't have running water or toilets in their homes when they were growing up. And then not far from where they lived in Boston, literally down the street, there were students at Harvard University that became part of the study as well. So these were folks that had succeeded academically. Some of them came from wealthy backgrounds, but not all of them. And they had a future that seemed quite bright given where they were at. They were at Harvard, they were about to graduate into the world with those benefits and privilege. And when we follow both of those groups forward, the first thing that's important is that there are people in both of those two groups that are very happy and flourished in their life. That their initial starting point was not the determinant of whether they were happy or not in life. And within the Harvard sample, there were a number of people that were unhappy and struggled in their lives. And what seemed to distinguish the folks that had some advantages that maybe came from the Harvard study, Harvard cohort of the study, or perhaps had a good life, you know, just sort of a good life in terms of material needs that were very successful. They were often missing a set of connections in life that gave their life meaning and purpose and surrounded them with just a sense that they weren't alone in life, that they were sharing their lives with others. So many of the most successful participants had neglected their relationships. And because of that, I think they were suffering in their life. It was their lack of connection to others the lack of just a sense that we get of being human through our interactions with others. Uh, so they felt alone and disconnected. And we know that that sense of loneliness can be quite corrosive, both for our mental health and also our physical health as well.
1: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, because if they are just hustling and hustling and hustling to try to keep making more money, more money, more money, and having all these things and being successful, and then they have to kind of live up to that, And they're spending more time trying to go to make more and more and more. It takes away, like we've said, from your family life, takes away from intimate relationships, it takes away from spending time with friends. And on the theme of, we're staying on the theme of happiness again. I think one of the other things you'll hear is that happiness is a choice. Like you have a choice to wake up and be grateful and experience joy. And that it's happiness. It's an inside job. Like you have to make yourself happy. Like what are your thoughts on that? What did the survey say as far as happiness being a choice?
0: So so our research and others suggest that certainly there, there are things that are beyond our control that might shape how happy we are. So some of it might be related to genetics and some of it might be related, as we talked about, to a certain level of income to the point where you're able to survive in a more than subsistence way. But it's clear that there's a lot of room left for people to influence their happiness and the quality of their life. So there are estimates that maybe 50% of our happiness is determined by our actions and the conditions under which we live, not just our genetics. But we do hear, and I, I think this is, again, kind of part of the social media these days, the social culture We do hear, you know, I've had a rotten childhood, so I'm destined for a bad life, or I grew up in a really tough neighborhood and I didn't have a lot, and I know I'll never be as happy as someone that grew up with benefits. And I think what our research suggests and the research of others is that, A, it's not destiny, that whether it's genetics or your early experience, there's plenty of opportunity for people to grow and change that we change the environments in which we live in throughout our life. And we also change as we grow and, and get older in life. So that's a really important part. And I just think that there's so much evidence, both again from our study and from others, that people do change. And the change is sometimes extraordinary. It's not just stories of people in their 20s or 30s figuring it out. It's people in their 60s or 70s that have lived in very difficult circumstances for large portions of their life, deciding that they're going to do something different. And they're really trying to change their lives in some way. Sometimes it means going for some help through therapy. Sometimes it means intentionally finding a new group of connections. So we profile in our book, The Good Life, uh, an example of someone who in his 60s found himself very lonely in a marriage that wasn't working for him and disconnected from lots and lots of people. He also had a health scare and had to retire at the same time. And because of the health scare, he decided to go to a gym, which wasn't a kind of natural thing for him to do. And by going to a gym, not only did he improve himself physically, but he encountered people every day that he began to build a connection with. And he soon learned that some of these folks, he was in his 60s or early 70s when this was happening. He learned that some of those people were really interested in movies, old movies, which he was really interested in. So he started to get together with people outside of the gym. So this was a man who was lonely for literally five decades of his life, but because of circumstances that happened later in his life, he changed and some of it was serendipitous, right? He went to the gym for physical reasons, but what he got out of going to the gym was much more than just the physical health that he was
1: able to attain. I often will say if you're trying to go meet more people and develop new meaningful connections and connections that are positive, that are going to help you on the path forward, like there's no better place in the gym right there's no better place to meet people than the gym because they're all focused on bettering themselves and looking towards the future and working on something and i think that's a such a great point you touched on something that i want to go back to where there's a lot of people that think that because they had a rough upbringing or because they went through something you know during their childhood that, that means their life isn't going to be good and you've touched on that there's Plenty of people, you interview people that went through the Great Depression, World War II, like all these people who grew up during tough times, but still were able to live a good life. And like back then, like mental health, like wasn't talked about like it is today, that the access to therapy wasn't there. There wasn't a, like support groups, the internet, online therapy. Like what do you think Like, got them through like the hard times? Like, Like how did they like transform themselves without access to some of the stuff we have today?
0: Yeah, that's absolutely true. It's a really important historical point. So one way in which folks did it is, again, they, they were able to acknowledge some of their challenges, even though it wasn't as comfortable or as socially correct to talk about things like depression or other challenges that one had. So the folks that seem to thrive in life despite challenges are folks that were able to acknowledge those challenges, acknowledge some of the feelings, and to not just acknowledge them to themselves, but to be able to share their experience with others in a way that was consistent with what the challenge was. It didn't distort it, it didn't hide it. And we think that that's a kind of coping strategy that lets other people in, allows you to cleverly take advantage of what others know and the kind of support that they can give. So that's one really critical part. Another part that a number of research studies show, and our study also suggests that this is that you might have a very difficult family background, that you didn't get the kind of support that you needed in your family. But if you can find, particularly during your early years or your young adult years, if you can find the support of one caring adult, that that can compensate, it can build resilience that you may not be getting from your family. So for some people, maybe it's not, you're not going to get that support that you need from your family or your siblings, but there is an uncle or a coach or a teacher that provides that kind of support that makes you feel seen and heard, allows you some space to talk about some of your challenges. And that's a story that we see in our research. We see it in lots of other research Um, There's a very famous study that was done in Kauai, an island in Hawaii, that followed a whole birth cohort. So they followed everyone that was born in a particular year in Kauai. And at this time in history, Kauai was a relatively poor place. People are growing up with lots of their basic needs not being met, and some of them grew up in difficult families. And one of the most important findings from that study is this idea that the presence of one caring adult outside of your family can help compensate for some of those challenges. I also want to say one other thing, Doug, is that one of the special things about our study is we don't need to ask people about what their childhoods were like when they're adults. We followed them in childhood, right? So we followed them forward from adolescence all the way through to the end of their life. And There are connections between the quality of their family environment growing up. So when they were teens and kids, the folks that come from family environments that were more supportive, more nurturing, more consistent, have some advantages. And those advantages include they find relationships easier. Their relationships tend to be more thriving in adulthood. But that connection, why it's extraordinary because it crosses as much as six or seven decades of time, that connection is pretty small. So the advantage it gives you is relatively modest, which means if you think about the optimistic other side of the coin, there's lots of room for you yourself to do the things that will bring you joy and meaning in your life.
1: Mm. I think one other thing that people struggle with now is intimate relationships, We've seen divorce rates skyrocket over the years. People they want relationships, but a lot of people are afraid of commitment. They're afraid of getting married because of you know something they witnessed during their childhood or being hurt in past relationships. As it relates to happiness and living in the, and staying on the theme of living a good life, how important is it for somebody to be married or be in some sort of intimate long-term partnership? in order to be happy in life.
0: So what we know is that
1: marriage is not
0: necessary for happiness, that people thrive who aren't married or in a traditional kind of marriage relationship. Maybe you get the kind of support that you need from friends or from relatives or an unusual set of connections you have at work. But having an intimate relationship also gives us things that are different than other kinds of relationships. So just by definition, an intimate relationship means a a certain shared commonality, a certain recognition of who we are, and it's a place where for many people, if you're lucky, you can be your most vulnerable. You can kind of shed some of your protective layers and share with a partner the things that you worry about the most, the things that are are maybe most unusual about you. So intimate relationships can be very powerful. They can be, you know, very important in navigating challenges in life. But people who are not in them find other ways, other kinds of connections that allow them to sustain themselves and to flourish in their lives. You said something's really important, and I just want to highlight that, you know, we wrote a book about the importance of relationships. That's what the research tells us. There's more and more evidence, again, that when people experience loneliness, that it corrodes our health. So much research that there's now a kind of recognition that this is a public health challenge, not unlike smoking and obesity. So there's a recognition out there that relationships are really important. So the the question we want to ask ourselves is why aren't we all benefiting from relationships? And the answer is in the question you're asking. Relationships are scary. We have to make ourselves vulnerable, that they're unpredictable. There are all sorts of things about relationships that we know are quite challenging. They're messy. So it's natural that some people are shy about being in relationships, or they've had previous experiences that have left them feeling mistreated or burned in a certain way, and they want to protect themselves. So relationships are important, but they're not easy. That they require some skills, they require learning, and they certainly require making ourselves vulnerable. And that's scary.
1: It's scary. And I think it's also hard, right? It takes a lot of work. It's this, and like we've touched on the, the fact that people, they sometimes want the The thing right away they want the the validation they want that that meaning to come like as soon as possible and with relationships especially an intimate one it's not like that like you have to approach somebody and you have to you know ask them if they want to spend time with you and then you have to discover about them and if and then you have to do your own self-discovery to see if that that aligns then you have to like you know ask see if they want to go out with you again and then continue to down that path and, and see where that leads and this could take years before you get any kind of serious commitment as far as like marriage or anything, right? It's not as simple as just going out with somebody once and being like, all right, let's get married or let's commit to each other forever, like today, or commit to each other for the next five years today. It's not that simple. But with that said, relationships are tough, they are scary. Romantic relationships are even scarier because you're at, that's like the closest relationship I would say is, is one with your partner. How can people do better when they're in an intimate relationship? so that these relationships will flourish and not necessarily lead to down the path of destruction. I think our first step is the conversation we're having is acknowledging that
0: relationships are hard, that they can be messy, they can be very scary. In intimate relationships, we know that the divorce rates still hover around 50%. And beyond the 50% of marriages that might end in divorce, there are a whole bunch that are not satisfying. People feel lonely. There are affairs going on that are not welcome parts of relationships. So relationships are hard. And rather than seeing this as a kind of downer and as a kind of you know pessimistic view i think knowing that relationships are hard is comforting to people so when a young couple whether they're married or not no matter how many years into that experience or not if they know that other people have challenges if they know that it's hard sometimes to make decisions together if they know that differences are inevitable they're always going to arise in relationships and then as we go longer in a relationship past that kind of honeymoon stage or those early years One of the challenges of relationships is that we change and our partners change. So the person we married, I've been married for 28 years. That person that I married is different now in some ways. And different is good, but it can be challenging because I say... You know, when you were younger, you really liked this, and I liked that about you, but now you've changed, you have new interests. And one of the the things that people who succeed in relationships do is they leave enough space and they give enough encouragement to allow their partner to grow and change in ways that are both comfortable and exciting. So if we can embrace those rather than be scared by them, that helps sustain relationships as well. The last thing I'll say is, and maybe this is obvious, but I, I think sometimes we neglect it, that... Relationships, intimate relationships, part of what's messy about them is the emotions. And we don't always get the training we need in dealing with emotions. So we started by talking about, you know, in the age of social media, how we deal with emotions by texting and other kinds of communication that might be virtual. We learn how to do relationships typically by being in relationships. And sometimes we learn quickly and some of us aren't clever enough. It takes us a while to figure out how to deal with our emotions. But I think there's a a kind of great need to feel more comfortable with certain kinds of emotions and challenges that come with them to know that negative emotions aren't the end of a relationship or necessarily a real threat to the relationship, that conflict differences, challenges are inevitable in relationships. The people who do well, are the people that cope with those challenges, not the people who avoid them or don't have them.
1: And so with, with that being said, as far as like one of the difficult things about relationships is trying to like co-regulate with, with each other's emotions, like have you found any strategies that from talking to people or from the survey that work as far as when conflict arises? it's like a two-step strategy is we
0: need to feel comfortable with our own emotions first so all of us have particular spots that we're just it's hard for us to sit with certain kinds of emotions maybe we're prone to feeling shame or guilty about something or we get angry very quickly and those emotions can be hard for us to sit with or hard for us to kind of recognize in ourselves So the first step is really recognizing them, slowing ourselves down a little bit and preventing that automatic response that often comes with emotion. So you can be angry without striking out. And I don't mean physically striking out. I mean, you know, yelling at a person or or demeaning them in some way. You can say, you know, I'm really angry about that. And you can say it in this voice that I have here if you're able to recognize it and sit with those emotions. So I think the the first step is really something on each of us to be able to feel more comfortable with our own emotions. And then I think there's a kind of curiosity that's really important. It's important in life generally in relationships, but so important in intimate relationships. So my wife and I have been married 28 years, but we've been together longer than that. And I can say things to her like, you know, you had an interesting reaction to something. It could be a movie. It could be a challenge that we had, something my son said to us, that I didn't have the same reaction. I'm curious why you had that reaction. And when I say that, I'm not setting her up to be critical. I'm not going to say, why didn't you have the same reaction to me? I'm really interested. I think my wife is very thoughtful. I think she's very competent. I'm really curious why she might have had a different reaction to something than I did. I want to understand it. And by understanding it, I get closer to her. She feels heard. She feels seen. I learned something. We didn't grow up in the same house. We grew up you know, thousands of miles from each other. So for me, the opportunity to actually learn something, to learn about how someone is experiencing something differently, it's such a gift because I interact with all sorts of people that are different than me. So my wife can, by understanding her experience, it allows me to think more about the differences we all have and the ways at some basic level, usually that difference at some basic level is something I totally could understand. Yeah, But on the surface of it, her reaction seemed just very different than mine. So I'm curious about it. So sit with our own emotions, be curious and kind of radically curious about it. Why is my partner reacting so differently? What is it about him or her that has led her to have this experience rather than the experience that I think they might have or I might have had if I were in that situation?
1: You touched on self-awareness, curiosity, and then also like the themes of compassion and empathy, like all these things are not only important for romantic relationships, but just anything else that you're going to navigate in life when it comes to dealing with or communicating with somebody else. The last thing I wanna talk to you about is work. How to achieve happiness when you're at work. Because while we've said that you know money isn't necessarily all that it's cracked up to be, it's, it's obviously still important that people have to work to be able to sustain themselves. I wanna touch on two things. The first part is Like, how can somebody make the most of their work experience? Because a lot of people are unhappy with their jobs, but they still have to stay there for the sake of the paycheck. And two, what role do relationships in the workplace play into their level of happiness with their job? I'm going to start with the second part first, because I think it's
0: so important to put it in context. So for many of us, work is the place where we spend the most amount of our working hours. We, We talked before about how valuable our attention is and for many of us if we're working 40 hours a week we're giving our attention to a job that's such an important part of our wake time during the week so We have to figure out a way to maximize the connections that we experience at work. This is easier for some people than others. Some people are working in you know, gig jobs where they're not really interacting with the same people all the time, or they're working in warehouses where they're interacting with things and not people. So those are hard jobs. And I think we want to think hard as a society about what it's like to be in those jobs that involve a kind of full disconnection from other people, uh, whether that's good for people or not, despite some of the advantages in terms of convenience and the hours that it means. But for people generally, what we're talking about at work is not necessarily having a best friend. It's great if you have good friends at work, but it's being in a work environment in which you really are seen, you're heard, and you're able to connect with other people in a way that feels meaningful for you. So that may mean someone, you know, just acknowledging you and your name and saying it's, you know, I haven't seen you in a while, Doug. It's, it's good to see you again. Remembering something about you. How's that daughter of yours doing? Did she make a decision about what job to take? Remembering something that may have been important to you that you had shared with them. So having those kinds of connections, being seen, being heard, a sense that people care about you in some way that we may need to cultivate them. They don't happen naturally. We may need to reach out and push the opportunities to grow those relationships. They may happen around work sometimes. So it may happen on the literally going out the door from work and saying, are you headed my way? Can I give you a ride? Can we share an Uber together? Those are ways to build connections if the workplace doesn't allow them. But it also is important for people who are in charge at work, the bosses, to think about this, that work. And maybe this is, we return full circle, that during the pandemic, many of us worked remotely. I'm a professor, I teach students, and I work at a residential college. So remote work was kind of challenging for us to do. Most of the pandemic I've taught in person, but I've taught to students that are wearing masks, and I'm wearing masks. which separates us to a certain degree. So i found that we need to think harder about forging those connections, having those opportunities. So for me, it's meant oddly, can you come to my remote office hour on Zoom where both of us won't wear masks so we can see each other and I can see what it's like. I can see that smile that you have that I don't get to see in class because you're wearing a mask. And I was starting to talk about bosses and leaders. For them, I think it's important to recognize how important those opportunities for connection are. So there's some research that at this point is widely quoted. It was from a Gallup survey that found that folks that had a good friend at work, a best friend at work, they work harder, they're more committed to their organizations. And again, I think that's great, but we're talking about basic things like being recognized, being heard, um, allowing people to have meaningful interactions with others during the day. So bosses need to think about the culture that they're cultivating at work and provide opportunities that are meaningful in that way. So tomorrow at work, it's the end of the term where I teach at Bryn Mawr College. And tomorrow we're going to have a luncheon for colleagues that work together on some initiative. And I said, I have no agenda. I just want to be together. We can talk about what's going on in our lives. It's those kinds of opportunities that I think are often neglected. And during the pandemic, it's been there have been reasons why we've neglected them. But I think we neglect them at a consequence for ourselves.
1: What other things can people do at a workplace, or maybe they don't feel as happy, they don't feel as recognized, and maybe they're they're new at this job? Because let's face it, like things sometimes take time, and they're not going to happen overnight. Like it's not like you're going to be there day one, and then by the end of your first month, you're going to get a promotion and a raise. Like, and I think that's something that people struggle with is that they want recognition, they want. The validation like right away, and it 's just not how the world works unfortunately, like what tips do you have for somebody that can maintain some level of optimism even when they 're not being recognized?
0: work takes so many forms, and we 're also at different points in our careers as you 're pointing out, doug, and I think taking a kind of both a long view, recognizing that I may be doing certain things right now that I hope may put myself in a better position later on, really important. But I also think that people need to live in the moment more, that there's a way when we're at work that we can get things out of work, that you know, during the most boring parts of work, I'm thinking back to jobs that I did when I was in high school. I worked in a clothing store, taking things out of boxes that were coming into the clothing store. And it wasn't the most exciting work, but it was most interesting when there was someone else there with me doing the same task and we could talk about things. So figuring out in the moment, In each moment, not just over the long course of time, but in that moment, how can you make things more interesting for yourself? What are the things that you can do either to connect with others while you're in that place? So the maybe customers that come into your setting, if you're working in a coffee shop or customers you have because you're doing some sort of customer-driven business, what are the things that you can do to connect more with them, to take a few more minutes that will reap benefits for you and that person. So asking them about their lives and being really interested, not just saying how are things going and then busily getting ready for the meeting, but really saying, you know, what's going on with you? Is there anything new since the last time I saw you? We tend to be afraid to do that. And it's those kinds of experiences that make all settings more meaningful. And I think work can also become more meaningful in that way
1: that's a good place i think for us to stop because things have kind of have come full circle and that the key to to living a good life the key to finding happiness the key to being happy is to not only be fulfilled for yourself but it's to focus on other people it's to focus on relationships with others it's to focus on driving your attention to another person when you're maybe not feeling as fulfilled at a job right it's about staying connected to others, you know, professionally and personally, not so much worrying about external validation, because that's going to only get you so far. What really matters is the relationships and is the connections to others. So Mark, this has been amazing. I think people are going to get a lot of value out of this conversation and they're going to want to connect with you. They're going to want to buy the book. Where's the best place for them to do that?
0: So the book, The Good Life, uh, which I wrote with my long-time Collaborator Bob Waldinger is available in bookstores everywhere. It's online and all the usual places. And we also have a website if people want to learn more about the book, goodlifebook.com. And those are good places to start for sure.
1: Awesome. Well, I'll make sure to include the links to that stuff in the show notes. And for those listening, what I invite you to do is to share a takeaway. Maybe it was something that Mark said about what makes people happy, about the importance of relationship, what he said as far as what it means to live a good life. Maybe it was something that he touched on as far as intimate relationships or something we talked about when it came to money. Whatever the takeaway was, make sure to share it and to tag us online because we'd love to hear your feedback. And we once again thank you for listening to this episode of The Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst. We'll see you next time.